The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Sometimes things can reach an ending more quickly than you would expect, with all the necessary ground covered before others have reached comparable conclusions. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and terror dog, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's presentation is a retrospective of the films of 2021, counting down the top ten and bottom five with assistance from my guest, Chris Arnsby. You join us on stage at the London Palladium, or I have bricked up all the fire exits. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? Have you had a wonderful year? It's definitely been a year. Well, this is our first uh, in-person review of the year for th- three years. I th- think you could be right. Yes, I think the last two were done remotely, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, because... I remember the 2019 one I didn't record until September of the following year <laughs> or something ridiculous like that because it took me so long to get everything together. Yes. I certainly remember one of them being a technical nightmare to get going because you kept not being able to hear me and then I I could hear you. Yeah. I, I think the problem was there was a knot in the string connected to your tin can. Yeah, that might well have been it. Um, but we did get there eventually. Yeah. And now we're actually here. We've got, got super modern equipment, mm. super modern people yep. and super modern ways of watching movies because yes. there's all things on streaming services now and there's hardly any point in going to the cinema anymore because it stinks and it's full of thick people who don't bother keeping their fucking masks on um i had to sit all the way through spider-man no way home two and a half hours with my mask on not even taking it off to take a drink of water because hardly anyone else in the cinema had their masks on, and I didn't want to get COVID and then spread it to my entire family over Christmas the yeah. following week. Seems reasonable. And ironically, of course, you are watching a film about a man that runs around wearing a mask. Exactly. Um, now, speaking of which, did you see Spider-Man No Way Home? No, I, oh. and I don't know why. Neither do I. I, I actually should have done. It's the, it's the classic example of a film that just kind of fell through the cracks it might be because i was carrying at home in case the coronavirus came through the window or something but uh well i mean it is it's still in the top five in the u.s cinema releases oh wow. it's still i think showing in a lot of places yeah i should make more of an effort really yes um it's i think it wind up it's already overtaken avatar in the u.s wow. it has been i mean if i don't know if you keep track of box offices box offices at all but it has been a monster wow um and, which is quite nice, actually, because it's really good. Well, anything that knocks <laughs> Avatar off the top spot is good by my standards. Well, Avatar's down to number four in the US. Oh, okay. Is it still the biggest grossing film in the world or something? Well, they had to cheat <laughs> because it, they're counting several re-releases that Avatar's had oh. to its total. 
But if you just have the original release run, then it's um, Avengers Endgame by a noticeable margin. Oh, yes, of course. I've somehow forgotten about the Avengers. Um, and then uh, Force Awakens made even more in the US than that. Uh, and then it's No Way Home and then Avatar in the US. And I think next one down might be Black Panther. Okay. So what uh, films did you see this year? Uh, About eight um not as you know a, a, a reasonably poor showing even by my standards but i do feel like i have a bit of an excuse what with there being a lockdown at the start of last year and you know assorted just generally being everything being a bit odd frankly yeah i mean you you need to be in the mood to watch a movie even if it's a, a film to kind of sort of comfort you mm. in tough times um i mean i've watched 52 movies but i see it as being my job so <laughs> yes <laughs> and a lot of them gave me no pleasure mm, yes whereas definitely. if you're just watching movies for for entertainment then i can understand why and given how unentertaining a lot of films were last year i understand your problems mm. so which films did you see um do you want the full list or because i'm now about to the, the the list you showed me five minutes before we started recording yeah, and, and, then, uh, and, and briefly discussed which ones we were going to talk about. Yeah, and then I got a bit confused and, and, and I'm now displaying my basic inability to follow instructions because you, you asked me not to mention some of them and I will do my best not to mention some of them. But uh, So I've got Godzilla vs. Kong. I've got Mortal Kombat. Let's, uh, well, let's, 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 let's go. Oh, okay. what, what, did you, what did you think of Godzilla vs. Kong? I, I, rem- I know nothing. Um, it's the weirdest thing. I... Watched it. Yeah. I actually remember the trailer coming out and going, oh, this looks really good. You know, I, I remember the um, the other one, uh, King of the Mon- Godzilla King of the Monsters, was a terrible disappointment. It was just so oh, yeah. ponderous. Um, Godzilla vs. Kong actually looked like it was going to be a lot more fun. There's all the shots in the trailer of Godzilla um, waking up on a raft and leaping around off battleships and things so he can have a big, big fight. And... I barely were. I think the film is set in Hong Kong. I think it is. Because yeah. there's all that weirdness, isn't there? Is it in King of the Monsters where there's like a subterranean world thing and they discover loads of characters? Anyway, it's whatever. Pellucidar or something like that. Something like, like, like that. Very Edgar Rice I didn't see Versus Kong. Um, I, I was still in lockdown when it came out. Right. So I didn't have the opportunity to thought, oh, well, I'll watch it when it's out on streaming, uh, when it's on um, digital rental. And it was, but it was never cheaper than twice the price of the DVD. Mm. So like £14 to rent a film online, which is absurd. Madness, isn't it? Um, and my library never got in a copy. Mm, that's bad. Which, you know, you know, up to them. Um, so uh, I've read a synopsis and it sounds good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a big monkey fight. It's a big lizard. And and Mechagodzilla's there as well. I mean, technically there's lots to like There's about a giant it. lizard, a giant monkey and a giant robot. Yeah. I mean... Uh, you know, maybe I should be glad to pay twice the cost of the DVD. <laughs> yeah, and no, I don't know it, but it, genuinely, I, I I watched it. I think I enjoyed it at the time, but it's just left a bit of a blank. Uh, what's next? Next on the list is Mortal Kombat, and this was the point as I went down the list that I began to wonder if somebody else had written this list because I'm sitting there going, "Did I watch Mortal Kombat?" And I do remember because that's the film where the man gets a special power and his special power is a new T-shirt or something. 
You know all the people. Right. In, all the people in Mortal Kombat have magic. You know they they have they various have special abilities, special abilities and like things. Yeah. Well, the, the the hero guy, his special ability is some kind of armored shirt or something. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad <laughs> you enjoyed it. Yeah. So that was two of my eight films of the year. Uh, next on the list is Army of the Dead. Oh, by everyone's favorite wacky funster, Zack Snyder. Yeah. It's not very good. I heard it wasn't very good. I'm beginning to regret some of my life choices, to be honest. Well, did you you watch this on Netflix? Did yeah, you? yeah. Well, at least that way you didn't pay any extra for it. No, this um, is true. I mean, I, I didn't see it because I thought it was going to be terrible, and it sounds like it is. It should, but, but again, it's the classic example of it. It's a film that should be great because you know the 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 premise is it, the, the the premise is nice and straightforward. Las Vegas is filled up with zombies, and people have got to break in. But it was just—I just remember it being a film that seemed to alienate me right from the get-go. It's. It's a bunch of soldiers, isn't it? And they yeah. basically they decide to break into Las Vegas to steal some money. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not one of these like, our brave boys people, but there seems something vaguely inappropriate about serving soldiers doing that. It just well, I mean, it depends on the context. Yeah. When, I mean, um, Three Kings did something like that. I suppose they did, did. It did, didn't it? Yeah. Um, but that's a good film that's about something. Yeah. And there was just, it was, I, I seem to remember it, that the, my big problem was it, with it was that it felt like they'd never really set up the rules of the zombies. Some of the zombies are very stupid and some of the zombies are very clever and some people become clever zombies and some people become stupid zombies. And it's all just, there's, there's just a lot of stuff that just, well it's a Zack Snyder film, but there's a lot of stuff that just seems to happen. Mm. There's a really, really good sequence where they're trying to sneak through like a room or a corridor that's full of zombies because all the zombies they kind of like go almost into hibernation or something so they're all sort of standing around and not doing very much and they're trying to sneak through this room without waking them up and that's actually very very tense and 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 really good but the rest of it there's like a cgi tiger and stuff and it's just uh, it's, a, it's a zombie tiger though right well yes yeah sorry a cgi zombie oh, tiger. and it it hilariously i forget it hilariously eats somebody at the end and it's meant to be the ironic moment when the guy that deserves it d- deserves to get eaten by the the monster gets eaten but it's all just a bit it's very very rote and very by the numbers and it, it's well it's a film by Zack snyder well it's one of the front runners to win the oscars fan favorite poll I saw your eyes widen in horror. Oh, teeth. I mean, A, there's an Oscars fan's favourite poll now. Is this the first you're hearing of it? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> How um, long has this been going on for? Oh, yeah, they've been doing this for years. Um, no, it was announced that, I mean, they they seem to, they're doing a great job of running the Oscars into the ground this year, just yeah. destroying any relevance they might have. Um, as well as abolishing it, eight of the categories to um, a a pre-taped, segment which will be shown in as hi- in highlights form oh yes i heard about that they were getting rid of all the boring awards or something yeah, the, yeah. yeah boring unimportant ones like editing mm. like the main ones um 
which even Steven Spielberg has said is not acceptable. Wow. Um, uh, but they have this fan favorite poll where you can people can vote through a very poorly regulated Twitter <laughs> system uh, for their favorite films of the year, and obviously it's been completely wrecked by block voting by fans. Wow. So uh, the lead <laughs> the leaders were. Um, Minimata, which is a Johnny Depp film, because the Johnny Depp fans get very upset about everything. Mm. Um, Army of the Dead, because the Zack Snyder fans are insane. Um, A version of Cinderella that I didn't even remember had come out, which apparently just caught on with a sector of the audience. Mm, Um, Spider-Man No Way Home, The Power of the Dog, weirdly, even though it's nominated for Best Picture and a bunch of other awards. Um, and a couple of others, and uh, like the people, there were people on Twitter saying, "Oh, you have to, you have to block vote for Zack Snyder's Justice League," yeah. and <laughs> they got very upset when people pointed out, um, "You know that movie's not eligible, right? Because it's a recut of a film that came out five years ago, yeah. and it has to be on the Oscars list of eligible films, regardless of because Army of the mm. Dead's on there because it's eligible, regardless yeah, of whether yeah. it's any good." Have they tweaked the rules about must-have-a-cinema release as well, then? Um, yeah, they did for this year again. Yeah, they did for sense. last year. Um, and they've sort of left that in place. But this year's Oscars only cover the last 10 months. Oh, okay. Uh, it's releases from March through to December. Um, but uh, it's a very bland, boring crop of films mm. this year. It's the first time in uh, 20 years that not one of the Oscar Best Picture nominees has been in my top ten of the year. Oh, okay. Even that the best two, Coda and Nightmare Alley, were good, but mm. they're still not in my top ten. Hmm. <laughs> I tell you, yes. So, so what's the eligibility? So, so it's literally just the fan favourite is any film that, that falls any, into yeah, it? Any film that it would be eligible under normal Oscar rules but that fans want to vote for as their favourite of the year. Because they tried bringing in like like audience favourite yeah. film a few years ago and they got shouted down because it was a terrible idea. Because it was they just wanted to give an award to Black Panther without actually giving an award to Black right. Panther. Um, I had the same kind of nonsense last year when they put Best Actor as the last award of the night because they assumed that it would go to Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. And then it didn't. It went to Anthony Hopkins, who wasn't there. He was at home in bed. So um, Wackid Phoenix accepted the award on behalf of the Academy, walked off stage, and then we had the end credits, and that was the end of the show. Fantastic. And the following day, Anthony Hopkins released a little video where he gave a speech, Mm. thanked the Academy, paid tribute to Chadwick Boseman, you know, the perfect gentleman, um, of course. But um, it just made the whole thing look ridiculous. Yeah. Hmm. Now, this might be one of the ones you told me not to talk about. Black Widow? No, we can talk about Black oh, Widow. Which is a shame because I was drunk for the first 20 minutes and didn't understand the plot. I'd had a beer before I went. And it's apparently <laughs> the film is so fiendishly complex that having a single beer, I just remember sitting there going, I'm not following this at all. And I, I don't know if it was just, I was just slightly more befuddled than normal, but it really was the case of just, I, I didn't have a clue what was going on. My brother, who I was watching the film, we also had had a beer, and he didn't seem to be following it either. So apparently, we were both just quite dim. It's not a particularly engaging film. Mm. It's one of the weaker Marvel films, certainly. Um, 
but it it really just felt like an afterthought, like a contractual yeah. obligation. That uh, oh yeah, don't worry, Scarlett, we'll give you your own film at some point. Let's just kick that down the road a while. Um, and now her character is dead. Yeah, so they're giving her a film in flashback, and it, it it doesn't really have any reason to exist. It doesn't really add anything to the ongoing series. I think that was the problem. It I, I couldn't even tell you. It's not one of the films that sat in the. The, the, there's a bit, there's a technical, t- well, technical term. There's a term for it, isn't there? The bit that Thanos snaps his fingers and then the last Avengers film. There are yeah. supposed to be some films that are set in that period. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Doing that yeah. five-year gap? Yeah. No, I, I, don't th- no I, think they w- I think they all jumped through. Oh, okay. We're, we're on the other side of that now. Because I, I, th- I, I thought at some point I'd, I'd heard that Marvel were going to set a couple of films in that five-year gap. And I remember thinking that was quite an interesting idea in itself to to have films that try to deal with the implication of of what had happened but maybe not well may, maybe they have but they haven't released them mm. or not or or done anything formal with it yet i mean it sounds like it would make more sense as a series yeah rather than just a film but black but, widow i d- i mean uh, you, i mean ray, remember remember how ray winston was the villain no. Yeah, he yeah, yeah cuz it's ray winston with his weird wandering russian accent oh Yes, in his in his big flying spaceship in in cloud base. As and I say, this is this was this genuinely is the point when I, I was looking down the list, going, I think I've picked up someone. I could, I, I've never had so, a, a, a list of films where where I've looked at the first few and they've been so forgettable. Black Widow was the first film I saw in the cinema after lockdown. Oh. It was the first film I'd seen since March twenty twenty. Yeah, that's a bit of a anticlimax, really, yeah. isn't it? I mean, at the very least, I didn't have particularly high expectations mm. for it. Um, I mean, I, I think the thing about the, the thing about any Marvel film is they're always made with a basic level of competence. And I think I remember going to see Captain Marvel or one of those ones, yeah. where I've never come out of the cinema and felt like, well, that was a waste of money. But... I think, yeah, certainly Black Widow well, obviously must have been pushing towards the bottom of that scale if like I say, mm. I, 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 I sat there for the first 20 minutes and went, I don't understand. The light's too bright, the colours are too vivid. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> why, why am I sitting in a big room with other people? Yeah, What's going on? What's next? Uh, next on the list is The Suicide Squad. Oh, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, isn't it funny how the DC films are so much better when they hire people who know how to tell stories and construct characters and things yes. like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, who did the original? Oh, David the orig- Ayer. Yeah, see, I don't recognise the name. I uh, did um, End of Watch, Fury, um, Bright, the film about... Um, oh, The Orcs, written the by Max o- Landers. Yeah, the, about the Orc Americans. Shadowrun the movie, yeah, God. Um, that just, I've never watched that on Netflix. It just no, looks diabolical. <laughs> I mean, the first, the first Suicide Squad was massively compromised by the studio because they mm. just kept panicking and recutting it, and yeah. the result is a total shambles. But um, James Gunn's version, uh, I thought it, it got... a the tone right it's mm. sort of a little bit guardians of the galaxy but more not gritty but more 
A bit more, cru- more muddy. More muddy. Yeah, I'm not even sure "cruel's" the right word. There were there were definitely times when it's the the, the humor is very very dark and quite unpleasant. But yeah, I mean, th- it introduces a whole raft of characters in the first ten minutes, and then immediately kills all of them off in horrible ways. Yes, yeah. says so right. Okay, now we're going to get to the actual characters in the movie. I was um, we were sitting there watching it, and. Somebody, as the, the, there's that bit at the start, isn't there, where um, somebody's blood is smeared along the beach to spell out a name or something, um, and there was some, there was a gang of teenagers, and they were terribly impressed by that. It was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it ha- yeah, it had a it had a strong story. It had hmm. engaging characters. Um. I've you know I've, I've been a huge skeptic of um, Margot Robbie's version of Harley Quinn, mm. um, but she actually worked well in this context. I yeah. thought, um, and yeah, I thought it was a, a very well-made, sort of near the knuckle, entertaining movie. Yeah, have you seen Peacemaker? Uh, no, that's uh, been picked up by Sky, uh, starting around now release of this podcast um and that should be that apparently that's very good okay and what's it what is it what's it about uh well it's about peacemaker the john cena character oh sorry just being spectacularly dim again and yes, um, various various other surviving characters from the, the film okay. now spun off in its its own series uh written and show run by james gunn still okay um, and there are apparently plans for sort of other spin-offs mm. from the movie because Peacemaker's gone over surprisingly well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was uh, you know so much better than anyone could reasonably have expected. I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? And I think certainly going into it, there was just the expectation that everybody just remembered the the terrible previous film and Jared Leto's terrible Joker character. And was yeah. he was that the film where he was like mailing dead rats to people to show how edgy he and was? And used or? condoms. Uh, it's just I think that uh. I, yeah. I mean I, <laughs> I would I'd like to wonder which members of the cast <laughs> after they've got these things in the post went to his trailer and then <laughs> shook him warmly by the uh, throat yeah. and told him not to do it again. And and the other problem is as well he must have done. There must have been a point where he had to tell people what he was doing, because otherwise, how would they have known how edgy and out there he was being? Well, he's got the word "damage" tattooed on his forehead. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you can't get much more, um, much more edgy. I seem to be using the word "edgy" a lot, but yeah, but yeah. Ooh, like, like yeah, like edge, like an edge of a knife. Exactly. Because he's, he's all knives. Because he lays all his knives out in a question mark, <laughs> and then cackles. <laughs> yes. What a dick. Um. But yeah, I, I did enjoy that it's mentioned in Suicide Squad that, that Harley just got fed up with him and left him. <laughs> yeah, no, that <laughs> genuinely that was quite a nice that, 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 that because of course again it 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 plays off the reaction to the previous film. Yeah, All right. Next on the list, uh, Shang Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings. Yeah, that was good. Yes, it's nice. Again, um, better than I expected. I th- yeah, but I, but I kind of I didn't really know what I was getting into. No. I didn't expect Ben Kingsley to turn up halfway through. No, that's true. I thought that was quite an interesting, because he's, he's 
riffing on his character in Iron Man 3, isn't he? Yeah. It? Yeah, which is a very, very interesting way of addressing that. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it was sort of deliberately trying to make up for that mm. that problem and have that character then as sort of the comic relief who's trying to get sort of redemption for all the awful things that were done in his name. But um, a, a very, a, a very inoffensive, inoffensive film. But you know, but I don't necessarily mean in, in the in the sense. But but it was just it was like, very, it was very easy going, very easy to digest. And it, it goes back to what I was saying about the fact that as a general rule of thumb, you can go and sit down and watch a Marvel film, and you don't come out of it feeling shortchanged. And that's pretty much with that one. You know, there was a nice fight at the end. There was a dragon. Um, a couple you got some you know some new stars in there mm. that held their own well on screen um some veteran you know it was very strong cast generally yeah it looked looked very it very has, it looked interesting the second best bus fight scene of the year yeah and but but at the same time it doesn't feel like there's much it's no, it's, I mean, it's it's just a, it's a it, it's a it's a it's a film, but there's not really much to sort of talk about with it. Yeah, it's that that's sort of the the reaction I've seen. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Mm. Not much more to than that, but yeah, good. Okay. <laughs> ah, and then Dune. Oh yes, um, I wasn't wildly impressed by Dune. Oh really? I went okay. Um, I found it to be very. It it wasn't weird enough. Mm. Yeah, I know it, what you mean. For a film that's set eight thousand years in the future, and is about the conflicts between warring dynasties on different planets over a uh, a drug that can transform your consciousness so that you can fold space, it's a very conventional, mm. dull-looking film. David Lynch knew that it needed to be weird. Yeah. But this looks just like, uh, I mean, it it feels of a piece with Blade Runner twenty forty nine, in that it takes all the the strangeness and the wonder of science fiction and it drains it all away to leave the Chris Bidmead like yeah. ah, but this is what it would really be like yeah. seriousness. It felt sterile. Yeah, I watched it with a friend who's a really big fan of the books, and he he liked it a lot. Um, I think the consensus we both kind of came away with was that the actual, the fighting bits weren't good enough. You know, he's, um, Denny Villeneuve should have got somebody in separately to direct the actual fight scenes. The, the, the example, I suppose, being at the end where (sighs) Paul Artredes has the knife fight with one of the Fremen. Yeah. And it's meant to be the moment where he's accepted into the Fremen. And and this actually ties back into what you were saying about dialing back the weirdness. Because I haven't read the books, I don't think what I hadn't realised was that as Paul is being exposed to the spice, he's ex- effectively he's seeing glimpses of different futures and alternate realities and things. And that's and that's how he wins the fight, is because he's already fought through it and seen how he loses. I'm 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 explaining this all second hand because I bailed on Dune three quarters of the way through, so I don't remember any of this. The book or the film? The book. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, but but so so that's how he wins the fight is because he's already experienced it and he knows what he needs. What happens if he how he loses? That doesn't come across in the film 
at all. It just kind of looks like he hides his knife behind his back and then brings it. it it's just, it's a very, very... Di- and considering that's also effectively... That's effectively the end of the film, isn't it? They have the knife fight and then they kind of go, we must leave now, the film is running out. And then it sort of fades to black. And I think, yeah. and then it's like, you know, and then it's into wait for part two. Yeah. So considering that's the climax of the film, it's a bit of a disappointment. Um, his visions of the future as well, of the the jihad that will be fought in his mm. name of a thousand worlds set ablaze across the galaxy, it's boiled down to a little bonfire of bodies like when they uh, burn the Jawas <laughs> in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, it, it It's... It's spectacular when it doesn't need to be. Yeah. And then when it needs to have great scope and great vision to tell the story that it's trying to tell, it gets really small. Yeah. That that final like knife fight you you describe, it I mean, <laughs> it makes me think of clips I've seen of Death on the Nile, where you have a tiny little set that's very obviously green screened mm. somewhere else. And I think it was probably filmed on location somewhere. But it feels very like a very small enclosed area for what should be the climax of this part of the story. Yeah. I mean, the the terrible thing is that the, 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 the most memorable bit of the film for me, and considering this is a film that has entire, um, you know, planetary civilizations going to war with each other, um, there's one particular shot as the Harkonnens are coming into the palace, and there's a bunch of the Artrades fighters, and they're on a staircase, and there's well, like one single cutaway shot of all the Artrades soldiers kind of putting their feet down into a defensive stance at the same time. And that's a really... I don't quite know why that stuck in my memory, but it seemed like a really effective way of just cueing the audience in on the fact that these guys are very, very good at close hand-to-hand combat. Um, and that shouldn't be... In a film like Dune, a bunch of people putting their feet down on the stairs shouldn't really be the thing that I remember, I feel. Dune isn't a story about war mm. i don't think i mean it's just it's a story about a lot of things i mean i've done a whole podcast about this um but it's about religion and ecology and politics and um legacy mm. the the conflict between the atreides and the harkonnens is really there as the plot structure on which to hang all of frank herbert's complex ideas yeah but um, I suppose it's the, the bit that makes for the easiest hook for turning it into a multi-part film. Sure. But and, yeah, that's that's the plot structure. But I think if you're leaning in that in, mm. into that too much as being that's what the movie's about, you're missing the point. Yeah. Whereas Lynch was going off, and yeah, let's do all the, the weirdness and the ecology stuff and, and uh, you know, the, um, the, the guild navigators and he's giant blobby thing yes. suspended in huge tanks which is far stranger than anything that's in the book but he's really tuned into this is what this interplanetary culture would be like 8,000 years in the future Yeah, and Villeneuve's vision looks like Lawrence of Arabia in space yeah well I suppose it begins with the well it's obviously deserts therefore it's all big sweeping vistas and yeah and and Hans Zimmer's music is very bland. Yeah, it's not it's not particularly distinctive, I don't think. It's not the only awful bland score he did this year, but we'll <laughs> get on to that. 
I'm now not sure. You look, when you looked down my list earlier, you told me there were some films I shouldn't mention. So I apologize in advance if I get thoroughly confused at this point. I'm just going to jump a few and go to Don't Look Up. Yes. Is that one you've seen? Or? Uh, uh, no, that's not one I've seen. That's oh, okay. one I've deliberately skipped because I, saw, I went to the cinema, rather, to see um, Vice, right. Adam Mackay's film about Dick Cheney. And I got about 40% of the way through and I just got fed up mm. with the the tone of the movie. They're very smug... Um, mode the film had of lecturing the audience about something that they probably already know mm. or are definitely sympathetic to it because you're not going to go and see that film if you think Dick Cheney's the bee's whiskers Yeah. Um, and by the same token I thought I'm not going to bother seeing Don't Look Up because just from reading the log line the, the, the loosest shortest synopsis thought well this is obviously a film about climate change mm. and how people aren't doing enough about it I already know that yeah who is this film aimed at? Apparently it's aimed at like my family on Christmas because it was the classic thing of going, what shall we do? Oh, let's see if there's anything on Netflix. Oh, look, it's a film with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. So we ended up watching it as it was our big Christmas film. And there were probably worse films to have as the big Christmas film. It's very, very... Strange. Even I think as I was watching it, it feels dissatisfying in a way that you can never quite put your finger on. I think other people have sort of said it can come across as a bit smug and a bit hectoring. I had a, a couple of problems with it. One was I didn't actually know anything about it going into it. Um, I didn't, and and if you if you actually kind of just watch the film, the global warming parallel is. It's easy to overlook because everybody's having so much... Meryl Streep's having a whale of a time doing Donald Trump. And everybody that's playing people associated with Meryl Streep's um, presidency is having a whale of a time doing various other people associated with, with Donald Trump. And it actually just comes across as a bit more of a vague sort of anti-science story. The actual global warming message kind of gets lost. Um, it's very, very odd. And so it wasn't till afterwards, and I was I was kind of hunting around on the internet trying to find out why I'd found it a bit dissatisfying. That was when I realised I'd sat down and watched this thing that was supposed to be some clarion call for please don't ignore global warming. It was... So that was slightly strange. It's also... And I, this is a bit... Of, I don't know why this has become a bit of a personal bugbear for me, but um, it's got a very bad role for the wife one. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character has a wife. Her role is purely to be there so that she can forgive him and take him back. The actress concerned does a great job and actually, again, talk about giving somebody a nothing part, but that's it. That's, that's, that's why she's written into the film, so that she can be the one to forgive him. That's not yeah. good. Well, it's... <laughs> it, <laughs> I've talked before, I remember talking about first man and is it claire foy yeah. that's in that and she's she's mrs neil armstrong and the character is written as just this shrew basically who's basically all neil with your obsession with going to the moon you're tearing this family apart um and <laughs> it's but she 
she makes the part work, and and it's just this weird thing that I've I, I've 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 started to notice, and and I don't know why, but the wife role is consistently badly written, and yeah, whoever mm. it is that plays plays the wife in Don't Look Up, she does as good a job as she can with the part, but it is literally just Leonardo DiCaprio's character cheats on her, she forgives him, they make up, and then the world ends. Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not persuading me that I was wrong to give it a miss. No, I don't think... And it's interesting when you were talking about Vice and that seeming... It, it's very, very smug and very, very pleased with itself. Um, High on the smell of its own farts. Yeah, that kind, that kind of is Ironically, because farts are bad for the climate. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, all that, all that methane. Um, and there's one... There's one particular bit where, again, the, meet, the the asteroid is visible in the sky. And it was Christmas Eve. I made, again, give, given I've just described how apparently one beer was enough to stop me from understanding the first 20 minutes of Black Widow. There's a bit where there's like a, a pro-Trump rally and they're all doing the don't look... Yeah, they've all adopted the don't look up slogan because it's a hilarious satire of the way that Trump fans took the slogan was it um not unmentionables what the hell was it that hillary clinton oh basket of undesirables undesirables that was it so the don't look up thing is supposed to be i think a hilarious satire of the way that they took on this role of the undesirables so they're all proudly chanting don't look up and then one of them looks up and sees an asteroid in the sky and goes it's like he goes hey but you can see it or something and then the riot starts, and then it's kind of never referred to a... It, it feels like it should be the turning point of the film. It feels like it should be the point where everyone suddenly goes, oh, actually, this is something we're supposed to be taking seriously. But it's just never mentioned again. And I worry that I missed something, but well, I'm not sure I did. Adam Mackay is uh, the director of Anchorman 2. Oh, not the good Anchorman. Well, actually, he did do both of them. Oh, right. Um, but then he did the big short and that sort of actually he the other guys which sort of blends comedy with mm. social messaging and then he leaned into it further with the big short and then he leaned into it further with Vice so he's gone further and further into satire yeah but without actually developing any kind of nuance as a satirist I he's just decided that that's what he is now and it's it's one of the it's one of the classic things that it's that it's it's all very well to point at this thing and go look at this thing that I've created it is a satire, but it it's like it doesn't exist in its own terms. No, it like I say everyone the, the, by far and away the best bits in Don't Look Up is that the the stuff poking fun at Trump and Meryl Streep's having a she's having a lovely time. Um, I think it might be the first Meryl Streep film I've seen since Death Becomes Her. Um, so there's been a bit of a gap. Um, but You haven't seen Mamma Mia? Uh, no, sadly, despite oh. having the world's greatest actor and singer in it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. It's It's a very, very... Odd and under anyway, 
we turned the film off and apparently we missed the fact that there was a hilarious post credit sequence. So my advice to anybody listening to this is don't turn the credits off early because there's apparently a hilarious post credit sequence. If you get that far. Well, yeah. You might only get... Four, well, how far did you get with Vice? 40% of the way. Yeah. Yeah, you may only get 40% of the way with this one. Well, as, as the joke goes, you know, I walked out of that movie. It wasn't easy. I was on a plane. So I've put my nominations for the year up on Twitter. Oh, yeah. For people to uh, peruse at their, at their leisure. And all but one of the winners is actually in the top ten. So I'll do the other winner now. Best Supporting Actor is Troy Kotzer for CODA, a film that just missed out in the top 10. CODA is an acronym for Child of Deaf Adults. And it's the story of a, a young woman who's in a, a, an all-deaf family, apart from herself. And they work in a fishing community. She is their kind of connection to the hearing society, effectively. Mm. Because they're all... They're, they're deaf, they... I think they lip read, but they uh, can't verbalize clearly. Yeah. Um, but she discovers that she has a talent for singing. And the conflict arises between her being interested in pursuing this and her obligations to her family mm. and trying to communicate to her family what this means to her because yeah. music is something totally different. Um it's. It was the first time I've ever seen on Apple TV Plus. Oh. Who do who does a very nice uh, week long trial? <laughs> when I also watched the tragedy of Macbeth, which was also very good. Um, but it was a really nicely written and well thought out comedy drama. Mm. Uh, Kotsur plays the girl's father, who's this kind of you know, bearded baseball cap, rough and ready guy, who is trying to comprehend this totally different society because everything is seen from the family's point of view so we're seeing hearing society from the point of view of of this deaf family um but it's a really good film it's a really great performance he's been oscar nominated for it um and uh it's very good and you should watch it but unfortunately it does seem to only be available on apple tv plus okay yeah so what what other things is what other things has he been in I don't know. I'd never oh. heard of him. He's he's actually deaf. Oh, he's going to say so. These are the, so the, yeah. all the, all the okay. deaf characters are played by deaf actors. Right. Like the, her, her mother is played by Marley Matlin, okay. who's the the Oscar winning deaf actress of Children from a, Children of a Lesser God. Um, but <laughs> so all the all the all the deaf actors are played by all the deaf characters are played by deaf actors. Mm. But the girl is actually an English actor doing an American accent. Oh, okay. <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, but it's. Yeah, it's a really good film. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more than I hmm. was expecting. And it's surprisingly funny. Like, uh, she, at one point she brings a boy home to uh, her house and they're, and they're talking and talking about the music. And then they hear noise coming from the next room and it's her parents having sex because they don't know that but, anyone yeah. else is home. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a nice uh, That's quite a nice gag. The um, Was it that that specifically encouraged you to make use of Apple TV's it was seeing that and seeing the tragedy of Macbeth. Right, yeah. Um, because it's a new Cohen, new Cohen brother film. Because mm. it's just the one. Um, but that's very good as well. So, it, yeah. Uh, week-long free trial. Recommended. Um, so our top ten of the year. Oh, our top ten of the year. 
which we share. Yes. Um, number 10 is The Lost Daughter, um, which is written directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, oh. her first film. And it's the story of a uh, an academic played by Olivia Coleman who's traveled to a uh, Greek resort to have a, a working holiday. But her accommodation is quite unpleasant, a little bit sort of fly-blown and... The caretaker played by Ed Harris is not wildly helpful. And then another tour group arrive, this this huge Greek-American family, and she starts to become involved in, in that family's lives. But we also flash back to earlier in her life where she was raising two daughters and struggling to connect with um, her children. And see, and there is a connection between, for her, between her early life and uh, one of the women in this extended Greek family. Um, I found it a really interesting and engaging and absorbing film. Mm. It's much darker and heavier going than I was expecting, because the theme of the movie is, what if, as a mother, you are unable to connect to your own children? Okay. And all the way through, I was thinking, why has she gone all the way to Greece? Is she running away from something? Has she done something really awful that's connected to her inability to relate to her own children? And at one point, a a little girl from the Greek family goes missing. Mm. Oh, God, what's happened there? And then 15 minutes later, oh, they find her. They organized a search party and they found her and she just wandered off and she's fine. Okay. But that does actually have a major impact on the rest of the story. Yeah. So I kept going off on these strange directions and I never really knew where it was going. Um, Olivia Coleman is fantastic. Mm. She's great in everything. Um, but it's um, because it's a female-led yeah. film, it's female writer-director based on a novel by Elena Ferranti. Um. It's an it's sort of an entirely female-led production. And so seeing it all from this different point of view was very eye-opening. Hmm. Um, it's on Netflix. It was released on New Year's Eve, oddly. Okay. Don't know why they chose then, but uh, that's up to them. Um, but, um, yeah, it's very good, very... A, a difficult subject, hmm. but one that I thought was very much worth finding out about. Yeah. Uh, anything to add? Um, not really. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I'm, I'm about to start diving into areas that I, I know nothing about, but obviously after years of Hollywood making films about fathers having trouble relating to their sons, it sounds nice to at least get the other side of the equation. Yeah. I mean, like, like I always say, I like to see films that show me something I haven't yeah. seen before. And this was absolutely that. Um, and fifth in the list of five worst films of the year. Um, it's a toss-up between two, actually. I'm going to say Chaos Walking. Okay. Um, directed by Doug Lyman, based on the book The Knife of Never Letting Go. Um, it has this incredibly convoluted setup. It's there's an alien planet that the humans have colonized, but it has this odd effect where 
um, men's thoughts are visible and audible in like thought bubbles above their heads. Okay. Um, and in this town where the mayor is, Mass Mickelson, there aren't any women there, but then there's a crashing spaceship with Daisy Ridley in it, and it turns out women don't have this this noise. And so one of the boys there, played by Tom Holland, has to get her to another town, but there's other people in the... The other men in the town don't want her to get there, and there's a secret, and apparently all the women were killed by aliens who are called Spackle, which is a silly name. And it's based on this best-selling book by Patrick Ness, author of A Monster Calls and Class, the Doctor Who spin-off. Mm. The script was written originally by Charlie Kaufman, okay. then rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten, and then reshot and reshot and reshot and reshot. The film was made about five years yeah. ago now. Um, Fede Alvarez was brought in to reshoot part of the film, um, and the result was just sort of randomly dumped in cinemas in <laughs> January last year, and I eventually saw it on... Um, digital rental and it's really odd because it has this incredibly complex yeah like first third and then it just turns into a really quite dull generic chase movie with like really guessable twists (laughs) and it just i just a friend of mine spoke very highly of the original book and i thought well I suppose the the book must work because the idea of the noise yeah. that every single man has all their thoughts visible and audible yeah. at all times on the page you can do that yeah yeah but on screen it means every shot is an effects shot yeah and is incredibly complex um, and the the thing that the thing that I kind of immediately thought of when you were talking about this was. You go, all the men have thought bubbles that project all their thoughts above their heads, and there's a secret. It's like, well, it can't be much of a secret. It's sort of a shared secret within the town. Right. But you can, it, like, if you concentrate, you can control oh, okay, your, what right. you're thinking. Gotcha. Well, yeah, no, I suppose that makes sense, yeah. Um, and so the people who are in on the secret, and it really doesn't take much to figure out what it is. I mean, listener, if you've tried hard, you've probably guessed it by now. <laughs> um um, they they know and they can they can sort of yeah um, yeah they can not they sort of have have sufficient discipline that they can control yeah. what their noise yeah. says. But it just seems, as you say, it seems odd to go into a film that has a lot of very very complicated setup and world building, and then just turn it into a, a chase sequence, and not even an interesting one. Hmm. There is a bit where someone man like this he's riding a horse down a river and he like manages to drift on the horse. Um like you know, like drifting yeah. around a corner in a car, but he does it on a horse in a river. Okay. Um and there's and there's the usual stuff about how oh yeah, because uh, it's it's a thing from God and um yeah, punish the women and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I thought, well, I mean, okay, but it, do something original. It's, I mean, the fact that that's in my bottom five indicates that, that I haven't seen enough really terrible films this year, but I've seen a lot of mediocre ones. Mm. Uh, number nine overall was Last Night in Soho. Okay. Um, which is Edgar Wright's film about a fashion student arrives in London out from out in the country she loves 60s design and 60s music, but doesn't really fit in with 
the other students so she rents a bed sit and while she's living there she starts having recurring dreams of a uh, young woman in the 60s um who um is seemingly being groomed for stardom but is actually being exploited by various people and her dream and waking life start to overlap and it all turns into a psychological horror um very different from edgar wright's other films it's Mm. it has some you know occasional elements of humor but it's not a comedy in any way right it's a very incredibly stylized psychological horror movie it's like a giallo well, there's a, a, like Italian Dario Argento style oh, horror movies, yes, yeah. like Suspiria, things like that, like really bold colors, really um, stylized camera moves. There's really great use of visual effects in the dream sequences of combining the two women together, mm. like one of them looking in the mirror and seeing the other one coming back or changing places mid-shot through digital wipes and things like that. Really cleverly done. Uh, it's got a really strong cast. Thomas and Mackenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy, winner of Best Supporting Actress for me this year as the, the dream figure. Um, uh, Diana Rigg in her last film, mm. Terence Stamp, Matt Smith. Um, it does f- start to fall apart a bit towards the end. It has very strong ideas about um, exploitation of women. About One thing I really engaged with was it's about how nostalgia is poison Mm. and i thought it was interesting that it thanks quentin tarantino at the end whose (laughs) last film was about how nostalgia is great yes and who fetishizes it endlessly this is me about no yeah yeah fashion in the 60s great music in the 60s great but you wouldn't want to live there Mm. no that's the thing isn't it particularly i mean particularly if you're a young woman who could be exploited by powerful men which is the point and then towards the end it kind of that starts to fade away and it gets more engaged in the plottiness of it yeah um and it becomes more kind of twisty turny brian de palma film so it resolves the plot in a way that's actually quite satisfying Hmm. but at the expense of the film's own themes Hmm. but as as kind of his first serious film um i thought it was really good yeah, um, I've got to say, particularly obviously when you said Edgar Wright, and you think Edgar Wright, one night saw her care for a very, very fixed idea of what this film's going to be like, and it doesn't sound like it is at all. Visually, mm. it does feel like an Edgar Wright movie because there is a lot of homage to classic horror movies like Don't Look Now and um, Repulsion okay. and like 60s, 70s horror movies, but the context is totally different. It's actually about something. It's a, it's a serious film does have some humor in it but it's not a comedy in any way so he's kind of redeploying his skill set in a different area mm. um which it, it works very well i think um but it's, it's a brilliantly acted film it looks amazing hmm. um i was very disappointed that it was overlooked at the oscars i think almost completely because the photography is gorgeous i mean it even made it films regular soho as it is now without seemingly any embellishments at all and it just looks gorgeous all hmm. the time i thought yeah i've i've been there i know these <laughs> buildings yeah. i'm able to actually find locations by sight of where these things are and they don't look that great hmm. but he makes them look gorgeous um so that's out on dvd um it's it's not perfect 
but it's definitely four out of five. Mm. Maybe even four and a half. Um, number eight. Number eight is one that I hadn't planned on watching. I did wind up watching. And whether or not I enjoyed it, I think may have depended on the bottle of wine I consumed yeah. while I was watching it. But I really liked it and really engaged with it. And it's the... I mentioned earlier that there was a Disney film that mm. really isn't suitable for children. And it's this one. It's Cruella. Oh, okay. Which is the origin story of Cruella de Vil. Yeah. It's a very weird film. It's two, It's getting on for two and a half hours long. And it's so strange that I can't imagine children enjoying it. It's set in the 70s. It starts with Cruella's mother, uh, or Estella, her name is originally, Estella's mother being killed in an accident involving some Dalmatians when she goes to visit her employer, mm. who's a cruel fashion designer called the Baroness. Um, Estella escapes to London and falls in with a couple of young crooks, and together they form a sort of surrogate family th- uh, and of uh, thieves. And, and as she grows up and is now played by Emma Stone, she gets a job at Liberties and uh, hopes to pursue her dream of being a designer herself, falls back into the orbit of the Baroness and starts to uncover secrets about her past and um, uh, embarks on this complex revenge plot. It's a very plotty film, mm. but it's also really interested in the character um, the development of Estella's character over the course of the movie, going from this sort of innocent young girl to a, this wide-eyed young woman, as you see her allowing herself to become corrupted mm. as she pursues her goals. It's really interesting. Um, the shooting draft was written by Tony McNamara, who also co-wrote The Favourite. Okay. So it has a, like a similar sort of interest in of conflicts between mm. women of power but it's it's a serious film with some humorous elements but it's the tone of it is so strange i mean there's mm. there's a character in it that, that's a, this is something else that's been bypassed completely there's a character in it who is clearly gay but they don't do anything obvious like have him kiss another man yeah. or even hold hands with another man but the character is clearly played that way he even models himself on Ziggy Stardust, right. because of the and, and the mm, whole yeah, film, yeah. the whole film soundtrack with seventies rock. It's such a weird Disney movie, yeah. <laughs> but I was totally engaged with it all the way through. Emma Stone is absolutely fantastic in her performance. I mean, it's it's like um, I'll say Hugh Grant and Paddington too, but it's like um, you know when Johnny Depp was in the first Pirates of the Caribbean film, it's like. Disney films don't normally have yeah, they don't. performances of this vividness and complexity. Yeah. But her performance as as Estella and Cruella because as, as the mm. character evolves, it's it it's Oscar worthy, I think. Wow. It's a really odd film, but it's great. Well, it's that nice thing, isn't it? When you get a film that you're not particularly in, you you watch something that you're not particularly expecting to be good, and and yes, they can. Those are the films that can f- sometimes just blindside you. Um. 
I mean, I think that's why I had the bottle of wine was to sort of you know, uh, ease, ease the film on its way. Yeah. But um, it was, it's a, it's a really good film. Yeah. Um, and like the the two fit the thieves that who she falls in with and become her henchmen in one hundred and one Dalmatians. Those are those are her two henchmen. Yeah. But it has a whole backstory to that, and it has a whole backstory to the the uh, the couple. Mm. Um, and we find out who they were and and how they met. It's it works, I think, best to divorced from the the source material. Yeah. But it's. It's a really strong, absorbing film. Weird. Number four on the bottom list is Spiral from the Book of Saw. Oh, dear. Um, I really like the Saw movies. Okay. Um, I like the the complexity of the storyline, how, mm. how it jumps backwards and forwards through time. I like the, the traps... Like, you know, you've got to saw your own arm off or it'll saw your face off. Or, yeah. Um, you know, you've got to eat your mother-in-law to get out of this or something. Um, and um, they've kind of kind of run their course now. Mm. And this is so, a sort of sideways reboot where they say explicitly, no, this is not the work of the Jigsaw Killer, but, you know, someone who's taken inspiration from them. But it's co-written by and starring Chris Rock. Okay. As in Chris Rock. Chris Rock, the famous comedian, yeah. Right. Um, And the film has ideas about race and corruption. And and someone's killing off uh, police officers, again, using the familiar kind of saw traps. But it's not not enough of a saw movie. It's not enough of a horror movie. It's Mm. like it's frightened of being too much of a horror movie. At the beginning, we get someone being splattered by a train because they can't cut through their tongue, which is dangling from the top of a train tunnel, which is classic Saw stuff. Um, But then there's like half the movie goes by without another of these crazy murders. Right. It's just a police drama about... uh, He's a clean cop, but he's a bad person. And the other cops don't like him because he turned in a, a corrupt cop. And I think this is not interesting. Yeah. I don't watch Saw movies for the characters no. <laughs> or for the kind of uninteresting rote dissertations on police corruption. Yeah. Correct and timely though they are. Yeah. Um, if he wants to tell a story about this, there are other ways of doing it rather than trying to shoehorn it into yeah. a horror format. And Chris Rock is totally miscast in the lead role. He can't carry drama. Hmm. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson has a supporting role as his dad. And he doesn't look wi- widely comfortable either. Um, it's just this really badly thought out yeah. film. I think the Saw movies are a kind of a bulletproof idea. Because even the weakest of them think, well, how can we creatively get someone to bleed yes. in this next one? Or they've got to give themselves paper cuts between their toes. Um, I mean, it's basically jackass, but with worse lighting. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I mean, and obviously, it vaguely feeds into that whole thing of, oh God, if I was, you know, would would I be able to, you know, pull out all my eyebrows yeah, <laughs> or whatever? The yeah, it's so. Do you, you say that 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 the 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 the, 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 the adjacent killer is killing corrupt police officers? 
I think so, yeah. It's a while since I've seen it now. It's a bit... I mean, it sounds like it should, in theory, be a vaguely timely film what, against the sort of background of Black Lives Matter and defund the police and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but. and and the films do actually have a track record mm. of adopting liberal or progressive-leaning causes. One of the previous ones is explicitly about how the insurance industry is corrupt and allows sick people to die yeah. and that we need to have a a socialized healthcare system. I thought I did not expect no wonder Saw it's... 6 to be explicitly pro NHS. Yeah. Um and also one thing other thing I I think it's the Saw movies that every year they would have to tie in with the new movie. They would have a blood drive. Oh, they I would see. encourage fans to donate Give, blood. Yeah. I thought perfect that's very commendable yeah. yeah and it ties in really nicely yeah um so i don't have a problem with them you know mm. taking this agenda or everything like that it's that the agenda overwhelms the rest of the movie yeah. that the the other crappier sequels or you know crappier yes. but what you know with actors you've not heard of yeah and things like that are made on very tight budgets are able to blend together the social comment and the horror elements much more easily than this does mm. Um, it does look as though he wanted to parcel a uh, a social agenda into a horror movie, but didn't really know how to do it, yeah. and kind of dial back the horror because he didn't want it to not be laughed at or not to yes. be taken sufficiently seriously. I'm going to show my ignorance now. I've managed to forget the name of the guy that did... Um get out and jordan peele jordan, it sounds yeah. like he's trying to do a jordan peele in a yeah way. um and i mean jordan peele's work is much more i think very carefully thought mm. through and layered and complex um but you know no one's expecting complexity of thought from a saw movie they expect complexity of plot because yeah. they're always hard to follow yeah. that's kind of one of their their selling points is this jumping backwards and forwards story story lining but it just doesn't it doesn't work as a horror movie because mm. there's not enough horror it doesn't work as a social message movie because it's so blunt it doesn't work as a police drama because it's so boring and the result is kind of a film that doesn't work on any of its attempted levels so don't watch it um Sooner or later, I'll get to something you've actually seen. Yeah. I find that very unlikely. Pardon? I find that very unlikely. <laughs> Don't forget there are some films on uh, on that list that I asked you not oh, to yes, talk about. Oh, yes, that's true. Trying to remember what they are now. I think they might be on the naughty list. Were there four? Yeah, there were four, because one of the, there was three that I asked you not to talk about, and the other one was The Batman. Oh, yes, yeah. Which only Thought. came out last week. Yeah. Um. Number seven on the good list. Now, this is one that did take a bit of tracking down. The Amusement Park. Okay, I can't... Um, it's a, a present in the UK, only available on Shudder, the horror-based streaming service... Oh, yeah, yeah. ...that you can get for a week's trial, either on its own or via Amazon Prime Video. Right. Um, the Amusement Park was made in 1973. Okay. It has a backstory. It's directed by George Romero. Oh, um, I think just just as he was finishing up the crazies, he was hired by the Lutheran Society to create a public information film about ageism 
and prejudice towards older people. Very commendable, yeah. And given that his background was in uh, television documentaries and public information films, thought, yeah, great, yeah. no problem. So off he goes, takes their money, makes a film, brings it back, and he makes a 55-minute surreal horror movie about uh, a man going into an amusement park and being subjected symbo- symbolically and allegorically to all the indignities that society inflicts on, on the, the elderly. elderly. Okay. And this wasn't what the Lutherans were looking for. And, and the Lutheran says, "No, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we just want like a public information film. Yeah. You know, be nice to grandma. Yeah. Yeah. So that got shelved, and shortly before his death, it, um, Romero and his wife unearthed it yeah. with regard to giving it a proper release. He died before that could happen, but it it was restored. It's been restored to 4K." It got a premiere in his hometown of Pittsburgh, and then last year it was released on Shudder. Um, as I say, it's, it is only 55 minutes long, mm. so it barely qualifies as a feature. But it was one of the most eerie and disturbing films I'd seen in some time. It was quite a treat that this forgotten film from one of the progenitors of modern horror, and the man arguably responsible for independent cinema itself... Mm should be so good. It's one of his best works. Um, Lincoln Marzell, who I give best actor to for this year, plays this unnamed old man. It starts out in a waiting room talking to um, his doppelganger, right. who is... His clothes are disheveled. He has a, a wound on his head that's been dressed. He's exhausted. He's depressed. But the other one, the smarter dressed one, is very excited to go out into the park, even though his counterpart says, no, don't go. There's there's nothing out there. There's nothing out there. He goes out into the park and he starts to enjoy his day, but he has to get a lot of tickets and the tickets cost a lot of money. And he gets he gets into an accident when at the bumper cars and he he's, this, this figure seems to be pursuing him all the time, just out of the corner mm. of his eye. And it's it's as though Romero has walked around an amusement park and thought about how every single element of it can be used to illustrate the indignities of old age. Not, not, not the indignity of old age itself in terms of physically, but in how society treats old people and the elderly. Right. It's a ruthless film because Marcel actually has an introduction to camera and a little... Uh, a coda at the end and he says one day you too will be old hmm. a reminder that this is prejudice that you know if you're white you're less likely to experience racism yeah um if you're heterosexual you're less likely to experience homophobia but we all get old and he signs off at the end and says i'll i'll see you soon yeah. one day in the amusement park and it's it's a warning yeah. that you know, if you turn your back on it, one day this sort of thing will happen to you. And now is the chance for you to do something about it. And it's and yeah. I think it says, Oh, you can contact your local office, da 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 and you know, there are there are programs to help and and you know, it's an mm. encur- as as it it is a public information yeah, yeah. it is encouraging people to to step up and take action. But in the context of a 55-minute surreal horror film, which is genuinely quite 
disturbing. Hmm. It seems odd that anything, any significant work by George Romero could sit on the shelf for that. Was it just that he had the sole surviving copy or something? I guess the Lutherans weren't lending their copy to anybody. I don't recall exactly. Mm. Um, I think it's just... I, I don't know. Maybe maybe they didn't think it was commercially viable. Maybe yeah, they I thought... Yeah, I suppose that's true. I suppose it's an odd length, isn't it? Yes. Um, there may have been rights issues as well. True. Yeah, there may even have been a dispute about who... You know, if the Lutherans funded it, then it's probably technically their film or something. And I imagine that as Romero brought out more and more films with slogans about hell being full and stuff like that, they probably went off him more and more. So, Well, he'd already done Night of the Living Dead. That was yes. the weird thing. He'd done Night of the Living Dead and was finishing up the crazies. Um, and somebody went, that's our man. Well, they probably saw some of his earlier work yeah. or when he'd worked with Mr. Rogers. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Because, it, as I say, his background was in documentaries for television. Mm. Um, and you can see that in in Night of the Living Dead and the Crazies that they are filmed in a very documentary style, mm. as is as is this. But it's it's that hybridized with like an early David Lynch film with this horrible dreamlike yeah. surreal allegory. Um, it's a very powerful film. I mean, I watched it sort of a Friday early evening, mm. uh, having finished work for the week, and it it cast a pall over the, my whole weekend because it had this this doom-laden tone yeah. to it. Sounds great. I, might I mean, yeah, it's yeah. great. No, no, seriously, it sounds but great. I might actually, I might have to make the effort to track this one down. It is very, very good. Um, number six, a film we've both seen and I certainly enjoyed, The Matrix Resurrections. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, I thought I th- I really liked it. I thought the I thought the early bits of the film were more interesting than the later bits of the film, but yeah, I genuinely enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. Um, the uh, philosophical elements to it and the 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 way it's been thought through are so fascinating mm. that um, Lana Wachowski said that uh, she conceived of making the film shortly after her parents died because she was thinking about um, bringing the characters of Neo and Trinity back to life because of all the of all the work she's ever done those are the two characters to whom she's closest okay. with whom she has the closest relationship and that sort of transfers into the whole movie that the, the central relationship between Neo and Trinity is the core of the film mm. Um, it's a film that's very much engaged with the characters themselves, um, even as the film interrogates its own existence. Oh, it's that I I, that's, I, I kind of went into it. I, I well, definitely went into it, not knowing what to expect, because I'd heard people talking about the fact it had all these absolutely insane lines. Look, people would walk on screen and go, "Warner's demanded a sequel," and there's that whole thing of going, "Okay, how is this going to play out on screen?" and Obviously, it's done within the context of being of him being a video game um, direct, uh, a video game creator. I genuinely wondered at points whether Keanu Reeves and so they'd just be he would just be playing Keanu Reeves, and there would be people going, "Well, Keanu, it's time for us to make a new Matrix film," because I c- I just couldn't work out how they were going to do it. 
and that whole section d didn't disappoint. Um, a particular fan, and it helps with the fact I really, really like the song White Rabbit. So that whole sequence where they're brainstorming ideas for the new Matrix game, and they've got all those horrible marketing people saying horrible marketing things like, one of the things we need to think about for this sequel is originality. Um, and, and and then White Rabbit fades it, and it's that's great. Um, re genuinely, I think that, that sequence was the highlight of the film for me. But yeah, very very much enjoyed it. It gets it gets less interesting. I think as it it, it uh, then it it realizes at some point that it actually has to be an actual Matrix yeah, sequel. It has to do the bullet. People are going, when are they going to do bullet time and things but like that? It, but it actually has the characters saying, oh, we have to do the bullet time stuff, mm, well, and yes, then that's, that's actually incorporated within the context of the mm. film where bullet time is an actual thing yes. that characters interact with. It's it's so interested in interrogating its own nature and folding it back on itself. Yeah. This film was a huge commercial disaster. Oh, that's a sh that's genuinely a shame. Um, um, I think they may have overestimated the audience's desire for a new Matrix yeah. film. But also, I think it's just so weird, mm. and it's going out of its way to say this film does not need to exist. Yeah. Because the studio is going to make a Matrix 4 regardless. Yeah. And they they kept offering it to the Wachowskis. And so this is, they eventually said, well, this is the last time of asking. Yeah. If you say no, we're going to make it anyway with someone else. And, and yes, and at that point, well, what sort of film do you, do you make? Yeah. You make a film about the studio demanding that you make but, a new exactly, movie. Exactly, yeah. yeah you... And, but the, the brilliance is, again, it folds it all back into itself because... The justification is that the Matrix gives you a comforting world. Mm. It gives you exactly what you want, exactly what you need, the way that a poorly written mm. um, studio-mandated sequel would. And this is trying to do something different and yeah. move away from that. And so it pushes it towards the, the focus is the, is the relationship between Neo and Trinity. And as the film becomes a bit more of a conventional sequel in the second half and we see what's going on yeah. in the real world yes. in inverted commas that there's been a, a machine civil war and that some of the machines are on the human side now mm. and there's a um, machine version of Morpheus that's played by a different actor who's made of dots yeah um, I, who I genuinely thought was very I thought he was great yeah 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 Abdul Mateen the yeah. second he's yeah really he's one of the standout in certainly in that film very very good um, like a, he's recognisable as Morpheus, but it's a different take. Mm. Yeah, that's um, exactly it. And where was the guy playing New Agent Smith? Don't really. I think that the, they offered it to Hugo Weaving, and he said no. Okay, which is a shame because the character is quite different from the way we had mm. Agent Smith before, and it would have been interesting to see Hugo Weaving come in and and, and yeah. for them to say. You can play it looser. Yeah. You can be more. You can use your normal Australian accent, and to have him play it in that different way, where Agent Smith has kind of evolved, yes. and he and Neo are now almost on the same side because there are other elements mm. in the story. It's thought through how how if this is going to happen, if Matrix mm. Four has to happen, how can we make it good without any regard to making it palatable to the general public mm. so 
the studio just wrote the check and Lana Wachowski just went off and says, right, I'm going to make the movie that I want to make and I don't care if it's a hit. And the result is a deeply personal, very thoughtful, intelligent movie that also has some not great action in it because it's not as crisp and beautifully choreographed as the original. But it, it reinvents so much in such a clever way it is made with such care and thought mm. by someone who really wants this to matter. Yeah. Even if the technical elements aren't quite there because she's not, you know, she's, she's no Yun Wo Ping. Um, but I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. And uh, the very, and there must have been bits that it almost feels as well. The end, the, the bit towards the end when they're having the big chase on the motorbikes and everyone starts jumping out of windows which to stop them you know they basically yeah. they turn which let's face it has elements of things like the september the 11th attacks and things it almost feels like it's baiting the studio in a way it's like well you told me that i could just go away and make a movie good luck marketing this movie um yeah it's and and just on on a much more smaller i, I don't quite know what it is about that kind of end sequence where uh, Neo and Trinity they're like hovering in the air and Neo's kind of like hanging from it's an incredibly uncinematic image because it makes Keanu Reeves look completely unheroic because he's just like dangling limply because it, because Trinity is doing is, all the hard work is the hard work she is the one with the power yeah and he has to trust her and he has yeah. to rely on her yeah it's fascinating because like I say it's, it, it's well, it's not the kind of image you normally see in in any kind of action film, but it's it's just as I say, it's not yeah, it, but it's just it's incredibly memorable. And the the very last main scene, which I won't go into detail on, but it's a scene where Trinity is stepping forward, where she is the one with the power, hmm. and she is the one confronting the menace, and Neo is just stepping back and saying, "I I don't need to be here. Yeah, I'm here to support the woman I love." She is doing what she has to do. I am just a bystander. Yeah. Where all the power is given to the female character. Um, and it's it's been said many times that the Matrix movies are allegories for... Um, transgender rights? Or yes, tra- or tra- um, coming out as transgender yeah. and underst- uh, comprehending yourself as transgender. And I think that kind of transfers into this one in a in a in a looser way perhaps hmm. but that element you can with that element in mind the film makes so much more sense yeah that you know that it's about something much more complex yeah um it's a shame that it did so badly because it really did <laughs> i suppose i also can't help wondering if there's an element of I don't want to describe it as well poisoning exactly, but that thing of going, right, I'm going to make the Matrix film that makes sure that nobody's going to ask me to make another Matrix film. Because it's because be- that makes it sound like it's terrible, and it's not terrible, but it's it's the Dennis Potter play version of a Matrix film. I don't quite know how to describe it. It's, the, it's almost like the f- it's virtually the Matrix film where everybody knows they're in a Matrix film. You have expected them all to start singing Dem Bones at points oh yeah yeah you're right it is, it is quite prisonery um but the thing is it, lana wachowski clearly has a vision mm. of what she wants and if they were to say to us okay we, we want you to you know what ideas do you have for more yeah a movie or a series or something i think she would have 
some ideas of, mm. of where this could go next. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, maybe it'll happen in a, a medium like, I mean, like comics. Yeah. Where yeah. budget isn't really an issue. Uh, I'm amazed, actually, there hasn't been a Matrix comic. Given that yeah. Wachowski's are huge comics fans and have, have written numerous comics, they've never actually done a Matrix comic. Um, but I would absolutely be fascinated to know what else she wants to do because this uh, people complain that blockbusters aren't smart or that yeah. they're they're too easy the matrix resurrections goes out of its way to make it difficult yes <laughs> but people didn't turn up yeah. and i think actually coming out a week after spider-man no way home mm. which just steamrolled everything i mean it was it, I never really stood a chance. And you've also got every, everybody's got the inevitable bad memories of the other two Matrix films. I think that's the other yeah. thing. Is I mean, I the last time I saw the Matrix films was at uh, one of these like, all night things where it started at eight o'clock in the morning and finished at seven, at six o'clock the following day. And at some point around three a.m. in the morning, they played the Animatrix, which didn't help at all. Oh, um, but certainly by the time they started on. Whatever the hell the last Matrix film is called, like Revolution. Lack of sleep. I quite enjoyed it. I think I may have just been responding to the colours. There's precious few colours in that film. Mm. Um, the green I, was probably the colour I needed at that point. Um, I I rewatched the original trilogy before the new one came out, oh, yeah. and the the original is still a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, uh, Reloaded and Revolutions are not great, but. Mm. I think with with time and and looking at them in context, I think I got them yeah. better than I had before. I think that was certainly my sense at the time was that at least watching them one after the other, you got more of a sense of how they were supposed to they were supposed to fit together. Yeah. This discussion is continued in part two, coming very soon. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with over 100 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, Cinema Limbo continues after News at 10. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.